Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus has come against the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day because tax collectors and those who the Pharisees would call sinners uh, went to Jesus because Jesus understood, Jesus was able to teach, and because the Pharisees considered these tax collectors unsavable. Jesus taught three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in doing so, he is trying to give them information that they will spend all manner of resources to find something of monetary value on this earth, to find it, to tear the house apart, to travel over hill and dale to find that sheep. Anything that has monetary value in this world, the Pharisees were very good at finding. But when it came to the lost people, the Pharisees had no interest in that. And so they were much more interested in their own wealth. They valued money over people. And so Jesus tells these three parables, the lost sheep, is seven verses, the lost coin is three, and the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son is the longest, and it is the longest and most detailed parable in the whole gospel. It has more words in the Greek than any other. It is the longest. It is also the most famous and quoted when we talked about the Good Samaritan, that name is applied to everything, but no real understanding of what the parable is, while this story of a son leaving home, being involved in riotous living, and then coming back home is the subject of songs and TV shows and I was watching a uh, Star Trek episode from 1992, and the title of it was The Prodigal Daughter, and it was about some daughter who had stayed away from home for many years, and she came home, and all the madcap adventures that involve in that, but it's in the title, and the word prodigal is uh, involved in the title of three country songs that I could find, The Prodigal, The Prodigal Son, and we are all prodigals, according to an internet search. William Shakespeare quoted and alluded to this psalm over 13 times. Garrison Keillor of the Lake Wobegon radio fame quoted this all the time as people would leave his town and his stories and come back. They would be called prodigals. This is something that is well known, the story, the plot of leaving home for an extended period of time and nobody knows what's going on and then coming back has been used throughout history since this has been written over the last 2,000 years. 
in plays and in books. Charles Dickens said the parable of the prodigal son is the greatest short story ever written. And so it is famous in literary ideas. It is famous in cultural things. And this one is, you can look at the lost coin and the Pharisees can look at the lost coin and say, yeah, I'd look for a lost coin and the conclusion that there's a party in heaven when repentant people get saved. The Pharisees could just ignore that. While this parable has three main characters, has three main acts, and one of the acts is the Pharisees. And so Jesus hits them right in their face with this, and we can look at this and we can ask our question, Am I the prodigal son? Most likely I'm the prodigal person because everybody is turned away from God at some point in their life. They're born away from God. Uh, but have I turned into the eldest son? Am I a Pharisee judging those who, who waste the things of the kingdom and stuff of this nature? And that is something that we can look at. If you want a deep dive into this parable, this is the book to get. Tale of Two Sons by John MacArthur. It is a historical narrative commentary. It goes through every command that the prodigal son messed up, every command that the father broke, every command that the eldest son broke, and why they're all losers in essence in this story. It's all messed up, and everybody's judged by the eldest son and what this means. And so it's about 200 pages. It's a very easy narrative sort of read. It's a very good, it's available on Kindle or your favorite bookstore if we still have those, those sorts of things. So in this parable, what is the story? So it's a man who has two sons and we get from the sense of what the inheritance was, that the youngest son, it took him a while to spend it all, that he's wealthy. Okay, It is understood from this story that the eldest son is wealthy. I mean, the, uh, the father is wealthy. Now, when I was in seminary, one of my professors said, well, the way you understand these three parables is the lost sheep is the story of Jesus. The lost coin is the story of the Holy Spirit. The lost son is the story of God the Father. Okay, you think, okay, sure, that makes sense. Uh, John MacArthur in this book says, no, it's all Jesus. Jesus is the saving agent. Jesus is the one who came to save. The God the Father does not run after people. It is Jesus who runs after people. So take that as you will. We'll find out. We'll, we'll find uh, Jesus and said, you know, find Luke and say, what did you mean when you wrote this? And he'll tell us when it's all said and done. And it all become clear, but it isn't something that has more depth than what is obviously here. So the youngest son tells the father, give me my half of the inheritance. I'm going to go make a name for myself. Just saying that breaks three to nine laws in the Old Testament. God started giving the laws in Exodus when they started taking the land. When they started taking the land, God told Joshua, God told Moses, God told the, the elders 
that when you take land, and land is given in Exodus and Joshua, you need to keep that land in the family. So you have the tribe of Benjamin. You have Benjamites, and there was 100,000 of them or so at the time of the Exodus and the time of gaining of the land. And Joshua says, from there to there to there to there to there to there, that's all for the Benjamin clan. Gives you room to grow. And he did that for all 12 tribes. The law, the law that is written in very heavy ink, it is throughout the Old Testament, is if your family owns a piece of land, your family will always own that piece of land. You're not allowed to sell it to the Judah tribe. You're not allowed to sell it to a Canaanite. You have to keep it. You can sell it to your cousin. You can sell it to your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, some other Benjamite. But it has to stay in the family. If you remember the story of King Ahab, King Ahab wanted Naboth's land that was right next to the palace. He wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden and Naboth said, I can't sell it to you because you're not in my tribe. Okay? It took him about 10 verses to say it. But that's what he's saying. Ahab was of a different tribe than Naboth. It would be breaking the law of God for Naboth to sell that land to Ahab. So Ahab has him killed and takes the land. Which is a sad story. But it's a good story about what this law is. And so... The son is saying, give me my stuff, which includes land, has to. It wasn't like this person, if you were rich back then, you had land. And you say, well, I can give him half the land. Okay, well, you can give him half the land. But there's also inheritance laws, and inheritance laws are throughout the Old Testament, starting in Exodus. If you have an eldest son, that eldest son gets twice as much as everybody else, okay? If you have 10 kids, the eldest son gets a bunch, and everybody else gets a little, okay? And you say, but that's not fair. Today, you can make a will, and you can say anybody gets anything, but back then, there were laws on how inheritance could work. And for the youngest son to say, give me my share, uh, it could actually be half. He doesn't get half, but apparently the father divided it in half, being compassionate and generous and not keeping the law, and gave it to the youngest son. When it says in here, uh, 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, okay, that means he liquidated his assets. He was probably given land. He may have been given houses. He may have been given cattle or sheep. He may have been given jewelry and precious stones. He converted it all into cash. Now, if you, I don't know if you've ever tried to sell stuff on eBay or sell a house or something like that. You don't always... Um, there's lots of people, for example. There's people who have come to our door offering us cash for our house. 
there's a lot of house flippers out there apparently and there's a lot of people who want to get houses at cheap amounts do things to it and then sell it at a great profit and so I don't know if you look at the value of what your house may be these days but the people knocking on your door or sending you a postcard are not offering you anything close to what a realtor could probably get for your house okay because of the way the market is and the way that house flippers are back then if he wanted to sell his land quickly if he wanted to sell the houses quickly if he wanted to sell jewels quickly he was not going to wait for the highest amount he was not going to wait for a, a Benjamite to come he was going to sell that land to whoever walked down the street not caring what tribe they were it doesn't say how the land was sold but the idea of him wanting his money and wanting it now indicates that he is probably not taking time to obey all the laws also if you're a child son or daughter and you go to your father and you say give me my share of the inheritance you can open Exodus and find out that you're only allowed to inherit when the father's dead and so you are declaring to your father your money is more important than you I am declaring you dead now this has happened over the last 3500 years okay and rabbis have written about it in various commentaries on the Old Testament that go way back there is a situation where if a child does this says give me money I'm leaving you're dead to me that the parents can actually hold a funeral for the child they can actually gather their friends after the child is gone and hold a funeral saying this person is you know dead to me this person is dead they cannot come back that they are gone that the name is going to be given to other children not this one because they took stuff while the parents were still alive it also says he went to a distant country this is a euphemism for went to Gentile land if you look at a map of 2,000 years ago the Jewish communities were down here around Jerusalem and up here in Galilee and Nazareth and in between you had Samaritans over here and you had Gentiles over here Gentiles non-Jewish Roman people were building towns all over the place and so if he's going to a distant country he's not going across town he's going where the Gentiles are so you have a son who converts his family into money and then goes and lives with the Gentiles so he is saying I don't care about being Jew anymore I don't care about being Jewish anymore I don't care about the tradition I don't care about the teaching I don't care about the Bible I am done with believing in God I am going to a place where they believe in other gods and where they do things like keep pigs one way we know that it's a Gentile place 
is that Jews don't have pet pigs because they're unclean. If he is attaching himself to a person who has herds of pigs, we know that he is in Gentile land. We know that he is not living amongst Jews. And so he's out there and he has, you know, he's living, uh, wasting his money. He's squandering his money is the word that is used. And when he's squandering his money, if we look at the word prodigal, people say, I see that word, prodigal. A lot of people today think it means lost or it means wayward. It means someone's gone and you don't know where they're at. Prodigal actually means extravagantly wasteful. And so he didn't become the prodigal son until he started wasting his father's money. And of course, when you start spreading money around, you will get lots of friends. When you start spreading money around, people will like you. People will say things to you to encourage you to spread more money around. And eventually, because the father did not have an infinite amount of money to give him, eventually, whether it be several hundred thousand or even a million, eventually, if you're just spending, 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 you do run out. And eventually he ran out of money with prodigal living. And then a famine hits. And anybody who's reading this will go, aha, that famine is God. Because this is, there are no coincidences when God's involved. And especially a parable, there are no coincidences. This person probably, when he spent his last denarii, boom, the famine hit. Okay? Timing's everything. And so there's a famine, and a famine back then, people would actually die. In the 20th century and the 21st century, every famine has been caused by a government. But back then, it could be a drought, it could be a war, it could be an upset king, it could be anything to cause the distribution of food to be uh, disrupted. And back then when you had a famine, people would actually die and there was nothing you could do about it. People die in modern famines, but this usually you can look to and point to and say, it's that dictator that's doing it. Stalin did it. Stalin caused a famine in the northern part of Russia and killed 8 million of his people just by starving them to death, by not allowing any food to be processed or moved into that area. He didn't like them, and so he killed them. But back then, a famine was something you couldn't control. You couldn't move away from it, for example. And so there's a famine, and he's feeding pigs. And he says, I want to eat the pods that are fed to the pigs. The pods that are fed to the pigs are not for human consumption. He could chew on them. They're very leathery. They're very... Uh, fibrous, and so he'd get his fiber, but he'd get no nutrition out of it. And so he has this brilliant idea, and I'm sure he thought it was a brilliant idea. And the idea is, he remembers back before the famine, and I'm thinking he's not thinking much about how things have changed in the years he's been away. But he remembers back in the good old days his father had slaves and servants. 
And even though the father's slaves and servants had to do all the work in the fields and with the animals, they always had enough to eat. They always, uh, they didn't starve. They were always well fed and well taken care of. The father took care of his servants and his slaves. And he's thinking, at least I'll have enough to eat. I am, I'm, I'm dead to my father. My father's dead to me. I'm no longer going to be your son. It says that in there. Uh, I'm not whether worthy to be your son. And so he, he goes back. And we don't know how long when you're broke. You know, if, you're, if you had money and you're leaving home, you could buy a donkey or something. But now you're broke and your clothes are all tattered, and you smell like pig, you're walking the many miles back, you know, the 90 or 100 miles back to home, it probably took some time, and it took some time for him to rehearse this. And while he is far away, and people back then lived in villages, and if you were the rich guy in the village, your house was probably on a hill, and the father is out on his porch. He's looking for the son, and he sees the son, probably hasn't entered the village yet, and the father runs. And fathers don't run. Young boys run. Slaves and servants run. Rich fathers don't run. And so this is a, a dignity issue. This is a throwing care to the wind and doing everything for the love of the child. And he runs and he gets the child way out there, okay, probably before he entered the village, and hugs him and escorts him through the village because if the son went through the village on his own, he probably would have been rejected by the people of the village. Because the funeral to declare him dead was probably, the whole town was invited. To inv and to, everybody knows that he's dead. And so if he shows up again, it would be jeers and it would be, you know, blaming. And so the father escorts him back up into the house area. And he says, in 22, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly. Okay, so in 20, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and the father's not hearing any of it. Okay, the father does not care what he's going to say. He says, quickly, in verse 22, and in the Greek, the word quickly is like a sentence unto itself. It is a modifier for the whole paragraph. So everything must be fast. Everything must be quick. Everything must be now, now, now. And he calls the servants and he gives them a robe. And the robe is a guest of honor sort of thing. It is a thing to say, you are the guest of honor. You are the one who this celebration is going to be about. There were special robes that were only worn during weddings. There were special robes that were only uh, put on when a military person returned from conquering a great battle. It is this type of robe. It is something that the eldest son probably had his eye on, thinking, I'm going to wear that someday. But it was given to the youngest son, and it probably smelled like pig now. And so the robe is something that puts him back in as something worthy of honor. 
He is honored by the Father. Then gives him shoes. Shoes is something that only free citizens wore. If you walked around back then, all the slaves and servants would be barefoot. If you were barefoot, you were a servant of somebody else. You were a slave of somebody else. If you wore shoes or sandals, then people would look at you and say, Ah, you have servants, you aren't one. You are somebody who has status in a family. You've got money. If you have shoes or sandals, you've got money. And he's given a ring. And the ring is the authority of the father. Rings were signet rings, were family rings. So whatever last name they had, whatever tribe they had, that was built into the ring so that when he went to the marketplace and such, and people saw the ring, they knew that he represented the family. The robe, the shoes, the ring was full restoration. There is nothing left to do. He is fully restored. And they kill the fatted calf. The fatted calf is, is veal. Uh, you would take a calf and you would keep it from exercising for five months and you would get it as chunky as you could. And then that would be the celebration. That would be your, you know, your, your veal, your tenderest meat. It was something that was saved for very special occasions. And the fact that they had one in the works indicates that maybe the eldest son was, was looking to get married soon or something like that. You don't just invent a fatted calf. You've had it around for many months. And so it was there for another purpose, and the purpose is moved over to the youngest son. And so, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is making a picture. He's creating a character in the youngest son who is the most despicable, reprobate, law-breaking, non-traditional person that you can think of. Nothing Jesus says about the youngest son did the Pharisees like. The Pharisees, in their minds, were probably picking up rocks to throw at the youngest son. He is so bad. He is the most evil creature that God, that Jesus could create in the story. Everything that he puts on it makes him a terrible, terrible, terrible person that nobody in the Pharisees would want living in their village. This person is somebody that needs to be gone. This person is unsavable. Okay? And what does the father do? The father saves him. The son does repent. The son does do some deal-making in his repentance but his repentance seems to be true. And he comes back and he says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I have sinned too much. He acknowledges his sin. The father forgives the sin and restores him. And so if the father is God, then you have God going after reprobate sinners that are unsavable according to the Pharisees. But what does the eldest son do? 
So the eldest son is out there in the field doing the hard work. And he hears things going on, music. He hears dancing, it actually says. Not sure how you would hear dancing. You would hear dancing music. You know, Hava Nagila and all that kind of stuff that they did back then when they were dancing. And he calls a servant and he says, hey, what's going on? What's the party about? And the servant says, your brother has come back. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. And the father, he said, I'm not going to want nothing to do with this. Father comes out and says, you need to come and, and celebrate for your brother was dead and now he's alive, was lost and now he's found. And the eldest son says, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. He says, but this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. He says, look these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Two things that makes that a very pharisaical attitude is that he is saying, I have done everything you've asked and you never gave me reciprocally anything. And the Pharisees talking to God would say, I have kept all of your commands. By default, you need to be blessing me. Now what the father could have said, which is true, is you never asked for a young goat. You never came and said, you are a gracious, compassionate father, obviously. You are a generous father, obviously. I'm sure that this has been seen the whole life of the eldest son. But the son thinks that the father should just notice his hard work, notice his love, and give him all these things. But that's not how... God works. That's not how Christianity works. We do not assume, I do not have in my mind, I hope that God's going to give me this, 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 and this. If I really want this, if I want to go in this direction, if I want this sort of upgrade of my house or my car or a job or whatever, I need to ask. We need to supplicate. That is the word that is used in Scripture for asking. We need to come to God, and we don't with deal-making, saying, I did this, 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 and this. Therefore, you give me what I asked for. We know that we can never fully obey. When he said, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, he's a liar. Okay? Nobody is perfect. Nobody is that perfect. And so when we come and we ask things from God, we are asking because God is gracious, because God is compassionate, because God is generous. And so he misses who the Father is, and the Pharisees miss who God is. They think God is some sort of deal maker that I am you know God's gift to God and so I should get all this stuff but we can never measure up to what God wants and the Pharisees didn't get that the Pharisees understood that God is generous and compassionate and giving but they would never accept the fact that God would save that reprobate over there or that tax collector over there, or that prostitute over there, 
or the people that they considered unsavable. And so the conclusion of the story is that if the father is Christ and the eldest son is, is a Pharisee, we have nothing after verse 32. John MacArthur kind of writes an a extra ending to it because the Pharisees eventually killed Christ. And so he's saying the end of the story is the eldest brother kills the father because that is how that view would go and that is how if the father is Christ... That is how the story really ended in the gospel. And so we need to come to Christ fully repentant. We are not anything great. We are, as far as the world is concerned, unsavable. But Christ is the one who saves. He provides atonement for our sin. He provides a propitiation, which means Christ took our wrath he redeemed us from the bonds of sin. He forgives our sin. And he adopts us into his family, giving us a robe of the righteousness of Christ, giving us a ring of the authority of Christ. I can now stand up and say, I'm a Christian. And he gives us shoes for our feet to show that we are part of the family. We're not a slave. We're not just somebody walking around. We are actually part of the family. And that is what Christ does for us. We are a lost sheep. And Christ comes for us. We are a lost coin. And Christ clears out everything to find it. And we are a lost son. And Christ gives everything to save us. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for these stories. I just pray that we would understand that I need saving, that I am not the one who tells God what to do, but I am one who comes to God saying, I am not worthy of anything you're doing. And in doing so, we live repentant lives. And Lord, we praise you for this salvation and we praise you for this day. We ask all this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.